0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Kennel, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I'll be speaking with Lucy Fraser, the author of The Pleasures of Metamorphosis, Japanese and English Fairy Tale Transformations of the Little Mermaid. As the title suggests, the book examines various adaptations of Hans Christian Andersen's short story, The Little Mermaid. Short stories, films, uh, novels, and a television show that were made across the late 19th, 20th, and early 21st centuries in Japan and the United States provide a fascinating glimpse of how this Danish fairy tale from 1837 has appealed to consumers and producers far removed from the context of its original publication. Lucy Fraser, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Uh, yes, I'm a senior lecturer in Japanese at the University of Queensland, which is in Brisbane, Australia. Um, and uh, this book that we're going to talk about is based on my PhD project. Uh, and I've since kind of taken up the my interest in fairy tales and retellings of fairy tales uh, in new projects, which we might talk about later. But I spend most of my time teaching Japanese language and culture um, and the research and the random service and administration jobs that come along with all of that.
0: <laughs> mm, I know what you mean.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> So
0: um if you're a researcher of Japanese culture, then what led you to Hans Christian Andersen and you know The Little Mermaid?
1: Yes. I was trying to remember that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just before I started my PhD, I went traveling actually, and um, I was so drawn to, you know, I was visiting all these the famous galleries in in the UK and Europe. Um, and I was really drawn to the visual representations of metamorphosis um, and kind of these, you know, the Greek mythology uh, being retold by later artists. I loved the stories and the pictures of people turning from human to animal and vice versa. Um, And I think I wanted to start to think about that theme in Japanese literature and Japanese stories, which was already kind of my area of interest. And then I do think, of course, we had to narrow the topic eventually. And I think my mentor and advisor, Tomoko Aoyama, had had this long-term interest in mermaids and was very (laughs) keen to um, draw me into that project. Uh, so I think that's why I ended up being mermaids rather than stories of metamorphosis more generally.
0: And that, that certainly sort of comes through in the book. I think you're you're always talking about way thing, the ways that uh, the story changes, but also the characters in the story change and sort of how we understand it. Like there's so much uh, sort of shifting and sliding that occurs throughout the course of your book. It's really fascinating. Oh, thank you. Um, And I I say that, you know, I've I've used the word adaptation here, but you prefer the word uh, transformation. Why is that?
1: Yes. Um, I was working a lot from fairy tale studies, and fairy tale studies tend to have particular terminologies for the way fairy tales are changed and retold. And so we have retellings, or revisions, or parodies, um, and of course adaptations. Um, And none of them seem to apply to the huge variety of of texts that I had. um, I mean, apply to cover all of the variety of texts that I had ended up looking at. Uh, So it's transformations is kind of an overall term, a bit inspired by this. Christina Bacalega, who's a wonderful fairy tale studies scholar, who uses that in another book title, um, and yes, what else was I going to say about that? Um, oh, and also because the PhD thesis began as a study that was much more focused on the type of um, the t- the process of change that was occurring. And so the chapters were divided up into different types of transformation. And adaptation was just one of those types. And I focused on um, Linda Hutchion's theory of adaptation that, that looks at the, the shift across forms, really. So being adapted from short story to film and so on. And that and how that affects uh, the, the way that the story is retold. So um, it was kind of just a technical issue really about labeling all of these different types of change that really resist any kind of pigeonholing. That is ultimately
0: the the real challenge with uh, a topic that as I said shifts so much uh how do you pin it down and I, yeah. I feel like the word transformation does get at that sense of constant movement very neatly. Um, and also, when you were telling us uh, about sort of how you came up with the the topic of uh, the book, you you mentioned sort of going back to you know ancient Greek uh, materials. Um, I always thought of Anderson's uh, *The Little Mermaid* as sort of being original in and of itself, but does it have earlier antecedents?
1: Yes, definitely. And I've been trying to. I feel like I've kind of lost my book. Um, <laughs> I'm not so close to it anymore. I've been distracted by other things, so I was trying to revisit it. But there have been mermaid stories, it feels like, forever um, in all sorts of places around the world. And I think for Anderson, yes, um, those kind of Greek and then Roman mythologies which had fed into this kind of um, use of mermaids as kind of these sinful, temptress uh, figures of sexuality um, used to warn uh, Christian congregations, you know, throughout, um, I guess, uh, medieval and Renaissance kind of periods. So I think Anderson was quite, it seems that he was quite, um, uh, I don't want to say proud of himself, but he um, engaged with his idea of this, of re-presenting the mermaid as a more romantic and tragic and sentimental and childlike figure um, as a kind of response to to those earlier depictions that he would have known very well. And there were some other um, uh, Undine and Melusine stories that he was also um, Adapting, I guess, in his his own
0: version. Now,
1: if I
0: mean immediately when you talk about sort of the the youthful Little Mermaid, I think of probably the most famous ad- <laughs> version of the story, which is the Disney film, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And. I, of course, pair it also in my mind with Studio Ghibli's uh, Ponyo on the Cliff, yeah, uh, which yeah. probably is the
1: second most famous <laughs> version of oh, it. Oh, yes. Difficult. Difficult to decide, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, what do you – I mean, th- they're very different works. Um, what did you make of them?
1: Yes. Um, you know, when you when you read a Disney film – everything has to be filtered through Disney as a studio and Disney as a narrative and, and Disney as its own genre, doesn't it? Um, and, you know, I think Anderson brought in that theme of adolescence and what he views as a very painful transformation from childhood into kind of adult um sexuality and as well as adult kind of um, identity and sense of self. Um, And I think so Disney were very keen to pick up on that element. Um, And I feel as though they're very um, self-congratulatory about this rebellious teenage girl figure that they've created without any self-awareness about the her counterpart, the ageing <laughs> um, kind of gender transgressive witch uh, who causes all the problems for the young girl. But um, so, it you know, Disney is quite irresistible, I think, for a kind of literary and cultural studies person. There's so much to talk about there. Um, and I really enjoyed writing about that film because of all those possibilities. Uh, I think what is interesting is that um, feminists, um, as a feminist, it's very easy to analyse Anderson's Little Mermaid as extremely problematic and certainly (laughs) I can agree with those ideas that this is essentially the story of someone who mutilates her body and sacrifices her own voice for the sake of a man. Um, But what was really interesting to see that that because of the, the kind of heavy Christian overtones of Anderson's story actually kind of give the girl more agency and motivation for her change because she not only wants to win the prince, she wants to win an eternal soul that humans have and mermaids do not. Um, and so, erasing that aspect of it in the Disney film actually reduces her her um, agency and, and sense of self um, as a character. So I think it's it's always really interesting when we see things that go against our assumptions that old old stories are going to be more sexist and reductive and boring, and that new new versions will have more empowered. Um, female characters, Um, and sorry, you asked about Ponyo as well, the Ghibli film, which I think many people would not automatically connect with mermaids. I don't know. Do you think you would have thought of that as a mermaid movie? I mean,
0: it's hard for me to say because that, you know, I'm a Japanese studies uh, specialist who focuses on contemporary media, so yeah. I saw the uh, advertising material, I think that you mentioned in the book, where they're Mm. explicitly making the comparison. Mm. Um, So I don't know what I would have made of it had I come to the film as a a blank slate, not knowing so much about what they do.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm curious about people's reaction to that film and whether they noticed it as a mermaid film. but of course, you know, it's Miyazaki, there's so many interesting kind of cultural references and um, components in, uh, that, are, that are incorporated into the, the story and the visuals. And, and so what I loved about that one, you know, aside from it just being the usual wildly imaginative and um, engaging story is that uh, I could see components of Japanese mermaid um stories in there as well that I wrote about a bit and and I really loved that that melding of different um mermaid elements that can be quite different from each other um in that film. So that Ponyo does look quite grotesque in some versions of herself. She's constantly metamorphosing into different shapes uh, and she looks like a little um Jim Mengyo like a person person-faced fish um, or a little, um, yeah, a Japanese-style ningyo mermaid um, in different scenes, and she's kind of considered by one of the elderly ladies at the the senior center to be uh, bad luck. Um, and and her bringing of a a tsunami, a, a storm and a tsunami, is um, also associated with Japanese stories of mermaids. So I really, I really enjoyed all those different kind of elements being brought together in that film.
0: One of the things that film does that's really interesting too is that the prince character gains a personality, to put it bluntly. Um, <laughs> and you found, I think, quite a few works that actually give not just a, a personality but a, a viewpoint all his own to that uh, character, um, what is the effect of making this Prince character uh, into a, a more um, substantial
1: <laughs> person? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's, yeah, there's not really much even to Anderson's Prince um, and far less to Disney's kind of cardboard cutout whose main personality is the fact that he has a dog, I think. <laughs> and he likes
0: his dog. I remember yeah. that.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, and that shows he's a good person. That's a, um, Yeah. Dog people are good people, we say. No. Um, <laughs> and the dog recognises the imposter, of course, uh, when Ursula is the sea witch is disguised as a human. Yes. Ah, oh, what is the effect of making the prince an actual character? I mean, it's just a smart narrative move to make, isn't it? To create a dynamic between those those two main figures in the story. Um, and I don't think it has to then neglect the mermaid's journey and her own transformations and struggles. I think it can create um, much more interest. And And so, of course, again, we have this idea that girls and women in fairy tales are one-dimensional and that we need to tell their side of the story and that's certainly true for the witch characters and the ugly stepsisters and so on. We've seen some really effective um, work in that area but um, in in this case that's, that's a great entry point into a new version of this story is just telling it from the prince's view. It might not be that he's just a kind of passive idiot who kind of uses this mermaid who shows up, this mystery girl who shows up on his doorstep until something better comes along or does what the king and queen told him to do and marry the the other woman. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it really shows that there's just so much depth to Anderson's story um, and that there's still so much that can be done with it. That's what was what made it such a great text as a basis for study is really there's so much happening there.
0: There's also, in a weird way, so much in the story. I mean, thinking about, uh, for example, the the Disney film, I really think uh, I really vividly remember from my childhood seeing Ariel sing Part of Your World, and she's just lovingly caressing and going through her collection of what, I r- clearly remember as being garbage. Yeah.
1: Right?
0: Um, <laughs> like a broken comb and that kind of thing. But normally when we think about fairy tales, they're all about, you know, glitz and glamour and jewels and f- rich furs. Um, yes. Has anyone uh, transformed The Little Mermaid in that kind of luxuriant object-focused
1: direction? Well... Uh, I think her obsession with her collection is, I think I wrote it in the book, it's very convenient for Disney with their <laughs> endless merchandising and um, ongoing profits for all their associated products. Um, yes, the and Anderson has these kind of quite vivid descriptions of the beautiful sea kingdom and the combs and Um, things that the girls, the mermaid girls wear in their hair and so on. And I think it must, I can't think of a specific example, sorry, but it must be there because um, that traditional, one of those traditional images of a mermaid um, is that she has a comb and a mirror and she's combing her beautiful long hair. So I think surprisingly for creatures of a natural element they are really closely associated with treasures and, and objects um, associated with grooming and beauty in particular so I think that's certainly a potential I'd have to think more on some specific examples because right now the image you've given me is of that um, you know in Hal's Moving Castle where his his bedroom turns into this kind of Tunnel and it's dripping with um, charms and 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 treasures and and shining jewels and that's all I can see in my mind right now. After <laughs> this question,
0: fascinating. Um, one thing you write about quite a bit um, is the the sort of uh, I believe they called it the grim boom, um, where yeah. female authors and manga artists sort of kicked off this fad for twisted versions of fairy tales in the late 1980s. How did that affect The Little Mermaid and its transformations?
1: Um, Yeah, well, I was really working with um, Mayako Murai, um, who's uh, a fairy tale researcher at Kanagawa University there, who very effectively traced that history of fairy tales in Japan and really... um, It wasn't necessarily kicked off by women but then taken up by women in a way because what we think about in that trend is um, these kind of pop psychology um, analyses of the dark side of the Grimm's fairy tales. So this kind of trend, which we've seen in English as well, of saying, oh, they're not just all um, the censored kids' versions that we know. There's very disturbing and strange things going on in these fairy tales and let's kind of delve into that and really enjoy those, those dark and scary aspects. Um, I would say, yes, that Kurashi Yumiko's Otona no Tame no Zankoku doa, Cruel Fairy Tales for Adults, um, is a, a great early example of that. Um, but I guess it took on that different element of the more pop psychology um, and and kind of other retellings, so we see, um, you know, more popular books that say they're retellings of, or I guess like, I don't know, let's call them light fiction or something, retellings of fairy tales that say we're going to show you the dark side of these stories that you never realized was there. Um, I'd have to say something I really enjoy about studying literature and and cross cultural kind of literary studies in the Japanese context is that um, Japanese people have tended to be very well read in these kind of world fairy tales and children's literature. More Japanese people that I spoke to than English speakers knew the Anderson version of The Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. So I would say they were quite familiar with the more dark version of this story where the the mermaid when she becomes human feels as though she's walking on knives with with every step um and the fact that she doesn't receive an, a happy ending with the prince but throws herself into the ocean and then receives what anderson would consider a happy ending of um becoming a kind of spirit with the chance to win a human soul um mm. that's a positive outcome for him um <laughs> for him, yeah. yeah, yeah, so I do think there was probably quite a higher level of awareness of that dark side of of the Anderson story that was slightly less overshadowed perhaps by Disney in Japan than for many English speakers, despite Disney's huge um, power and popularity in Japan. <laughs>
0: That actually, uh, reminds me too, you mentioned Kurahashi's, uh, cruel fairy tales for adults. Mm. Um, and yet the little mermaid is very much a story about a younger person. Um, what does happen to the little mermaid after happily ever after? Is there an adult version of the little mermaid? Uh, yeah.
1: many meanings of adult here. I think.
0: <laughs> Perhaps not the best phrasing there.
1: Yeah. No. Um, well, the final chapter of my book, the final kind of analysis chapter, I called, I labeled the stories I looked at their post fairy tales. So they were kind of sequels to the Little Mermaid story or looked at what happens when the Little Mermaid grows up and, and also post, as in, you know, let's not get too heavily into a discussion of post modernism, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But all all those different connotations of post as in fairy tales exist, the post-feminist take on fairy tales. Um, And so looking at all these stories of after um, and what I found in those ones is there's often stories of adults discussing explicitly Anderson's and or Disney's The Little Mermaid and their responses and preferences to that while they themselves um, act out some kind of mermaid story at the same time usually. Um, so I think that's another t- way to transform a fairy tale and engage with a text is to follow on um, or, of course, imagine it in a contemporary setting. Um, that, and, you know, I'm thinking of the t- television series Dark Angel. I looked mm-hmm. at in that chapter. Um, in a kind of post-apocalyptic or post-economic prosperity kind of scenario. Um, And that brings us back to darker looks at these Mm. children's stories. Does that answer your question? I don't know if I've wandered off track with that one. (laughs) No, it
0: makes perfect sense. I mean, Mm. the, the way actual people interact with these stories or fairy tales and such very much is we th- think about them in relation to our life and our choices um so that is perhaps just a form of realism in fiction or a merging mm-hmm. of it, fantasy mm. um, yeah which is as
1: what you said- fantasy does <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. um
0: and so i've i've Taken up, I think, a fair bit of your time. I know you're yeah. uh, very uh, busily booked today. Um, <laughs> but Might I ask you uh, what you're working on these days? You you sort of briefly introduced it at the beginning. but yes. Could you tell us a little bit more?
1: <laughs> I've been very happily busy this year with a project um, that is not really. Um, It's not so much of a research project yet, though. hopefully it will give me some good research directions, but I've been working on a series of events, um, Festival of the Fantastic in Australian and Japanese Arts. Uh, This has been funded by the Australia Japan Foundation. So our goal is to get more Australian arts um, enjoyed and appreciated in Japan. Uh, And that's been a lot of fun because it's taken me back to my roots and I've been working with many fabulous people including one of my favourite YA fantasy authors of all time, Isabel Carmody, um, who's an Australian author, Um, and trying to bring people together uh, in these two locations over their love of the fantastic arts, which we have stubbornly refused to define for the entire festival. (laughs) uh, <laughs> but so, fairy tales, fantasy, speculative, horror, sci fi, anything uh, beyond what would be labelled realism has been involved in this festival. So we've had author interviews, artist interviews with people like Takata Fuyuhiko, who's an amazing contemporary artist who does video art where he reenacts bits of Disney's The Little Mermaid, for example. <laughs> Um, Konoike Tomoko, who does wonderful fairy tale-esque creations. Um, and and so trying to connect audiences, academics, artists and authors of the fantastic um, through these, these get-togethers and, and various kind of online ongoing things. So I would love if people would have a look at our website for that. It's um, fantasy art. Yes. yes.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. And actually, it reminds me, um, I ha- have to admit, I had my students in one of my classes this semester read uh, part of your book. And oh, uh, you. <laughs> they loved it.
1: Oh, good um, so time. thank you.
0: Um, but one of them uh, asked me uh, and was hoping that perhaps uh, you could say, Uh, She wanted to know what your uh, reaction was to the criticism that the the 2023 planned live action uh, (laughs) Disney Little Mermaid film, um, I don't know if you've heard, but it's getting criticized for having cast Halle Bailey, a black singer, to play Ariel.
1: Um, How ridiculous is my reaction? (laughs) I've been mm. avoiding the online discussion of that because I find (laughs) it so tedious and boring that people care um, that a black person is being cast in this role. They're attached to Ariel. Um, I'm interested in the use of red hair in mermaid stories and in girls' stories. I think it has a lot of interesting connotations and symbolisms. Um, As part of that study, I'm looking at redheaded characters in Japanese stories, and I make no distinction between artificially coloured red hair and natural (laughs) red hair, I really don't think that's important. Um, And so I don't think even an attachment to that Disney character and her particular physical features is really a justifiable reason to complain about that casting for me. I just think, you know, whoever's going to sing beautifully and, and inhabit the role is the right person to cast. Um, and also mermaid stories have been around the world for a very long time, including black people's cultures, um, right? This is not a strange thing to have a black person acting in the role of a mermaid if we look at the greater history of mermaids, um, and there's some really interesting research happening um, on African kind of water goddess um, figures. And I came across um, Indigenous Australian stories of river and saltwater um, mermaid figures. Uh, They look quite similar to other ancient cultural um, depictions of mermaids and have really interesting similarities to other traditions. So this is a shared um, figure. That white people do not own. Um, <laughs> so, yes, um, that is my reaction to that. But mostly, I'm very ignorant about the actual debate because I um, have no interest in engaging with those complaints. Well, the
0: internet. Yes, the internet <laughs> yes. is not always the best place to, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to look at discussions.
1: But thank you for telling
0: us about that. And certainly, one of the things that comes through very clearly in your book is just the the amazing diversity of mm. mermaid transformations. Um, and I imagine that your uh, was it the Fantastic Fest? Yes, uh, Fantastic I imagine that's up. going to sort of expand our understanding of the diversity available in fantasy or beyond mermaids to fantasy more generally. So thank you very much for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you so much.